Morning, everybody. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to uh, review time. Venerable is uh, catching up with her jet lag or working through her jet lag coming from her travels afar. So um, I'm going to do the second half review of Chapter 5, Guarding Introspection. And so uh, let's start off, first of all, with uh, doing a visualization of the Buddha in the space in front of us get our minds in the Dharma in that way, and then we'll do our prayers and then go from there. So really touch into your refuge. When you think of the Buddha in the space in front of you, all the holy beings around him, what does that bring up for you? You know, What is your... What is your relationship to him? And touch in, in deep in your heart to that relationship, wherever it is on the continuum of many lives. And really see him and all the holy beings looking at all of us with incredible kindness and acceptance and tenderness, understanding. And then imagine ourselves surrounded by all living beings in human form, bringing all of their struggles, their hopes, their dreams, and at this point, whatever they take refuge in, putting that down for this moment, this time, and bringing their attention to the Buddha. All of our kind mothers, who have helped us to create the causes to be here today. And so really touch in with your bodhicitta. So for our motivation this morning, um, I think we can all agree that if we are to continue on our journey to freedom from samsara and to Buddhahood, we need the wisdom of our spiritual mentors to guide and direct our attention to these kinds of texts and teachings of the Dharma that will help us to do that. And to have them share with us their personal journeys in regards to these texts, how they have listened and continue to listen to them, think about them, have thought about them, discussed, continue to discuss, ask questions about them, and continue to reflect deeply on their value and application. I think we can find true inspiration and some confidence that the Dharma that is as real and continues to become more and more alive in their minds through their practice, their study, by following their example, the Dharma will become more real and alive for us. We need to do the same work. We need to put in the same effort as they do, continue to do, and have done in order to experience the same results. And those results arise from logic, from reasoning, and sincere practice towards that long-term goal of awakening. And with bodhicitta as the motivating factor, we can see that also in their lives, their teachings, their example, 
that behind our efforts, this journey must never just become about our liberation from this cycle of dukkha, must never become just about our awakening, but should remain ultimately always about others. So may bodhicitta always inform our hearing, our thinking, our meditating. And so as we review Shanti Deva's text on the Bodhisattva deeds, let's keep that in mind and rejoice at this rare and precious opportunity to progress along the path using this beautiful text and the inspiration of our spiritual mentors as well. So we are on chapter five, guarding introspection, the way to train in ethics. And last week, Venerable Supple got us going on the first 58 verses, pretty much all around how to guard our mind from negativities, how to um, mind our own business, sort of, with mindfulness and introspective awareness, and that they are the foundational mind states for practicing and ma maintaining our ethical conduct. So no matter whether we're, for the first 58 verses, it was more about how to refrain ourselves, how to watch our speech, watch our mind, how to guard ourselves. And then in the second part of the chapter, we're going to be using those same two mental factors, among other things, to be able to gather virtue, to accumulate merit, and then to accomplish the welfare or to benefit others. Um, so that is where we will go on the second part of this. And Shantideva makes a strong case on ways to guard the mind, the necessity to guard the mind, the benefits to guarding the mind, so that we can be of benefit and that we can gather a, a huge amount of merit by um, holding ethical conduct as uh, our foundation for all that we do. And that we do it in a number of ways. You know, Shantideva uses these analogies that I just really appreciate so much. First of all, he says to make effort to purify all the three doors, okay? So the four opponent powers, any of our purification practices that require honesty, regret, acceptance, humility, to examine our body, speech, and mind, especially the motivations that precede what we do with our body, speech, to think about what's going on in our minds. And she also you know, brought up to the forefront is that keeping our precepts and keeping our values in the front of our mind fastening, securing them there as we go through the day will help us to cultivate the wisdom that can discern, okay, what do we abandon? What do we cultivate? And when I think about these two things that we hear a lot in the Dharma, what to abandon, what to cultivate, that it comes up all the time. Any type of exchange, any type of situation, any type of activity, whether it's at the monastery, at home, or at work, there are going to be these moments where we're going to say to ourselves as it's unfolding, what do I do here? What do I say here? How am I supposed to think about this now, <laughs> then, maybe later? So the, the discernment to know what to cultivate and what to abandon in all of these situations is a crucial piece. And mindfulness and introspective awareness are powerful allies to keep us vigilant, to become aware of what's going on internally. So what happens externally is going to prove productive and useful and virtuous and kind. And also, too, is that what is going on in my mind right now, for the first part of this these chap this chapter, it was more about how to avoid, to refrain, to be vigilant, to guard against negativities and the creating of negative karma. So that's the first discipline when it comes to using 
uh, introspective awareness and mindfulness in developing ethical conduct. Also, too, um, wrongdoing depends on our minds. When unpleasant feelings arise and the urge to react, the first thing we do, and I think this is just a sentient being habit, it's certainly a human habit, certainly my habit, is to turn the attention. The unpleasant feeling arises, the feeling's there, and the first thing I do is I look outward. There's got to be a source outside myself that is causing this unpleasant feeling. And so in these chapters, this is where we get to hit the pause button, stop and remember that whatever we are focusing out there as the cause of our dukkha perhaps could be a cooperative condition, but is not the substantial cause for our dukkha. It is our mind, the unpleasant feeling, whatever the proliferating thoughts that happen in our mental consciousness, the affliction arises, and off we go. Um, and at times, mindfulness and introspective awareness are so helpful because Shantideva uses the analogy of our mind being like a wound. And when we get upset, you know, sometimes it's, it's upset, it's inflamed, it's hardened, it's tight, it's constricted. And those times we need to be really careful and vigilant and caring of it. It is vulnerable to give it some form of protection to avoid the situations and the people that at times will mostly unintentionally poke at us, jostle it, scrape up against our mind that's upset and and agitated and inflamed. They are not responsible for the wound, but they certainly can be a cooperative condition. And so we really need to take care of our minds. And once again, introspective awareness and mindfulness keep us vigilant and keep us continually turning. How am I doing? What's going on inside of my mind? The other thing that Shanti Davis says is that to remember that when we are in a room and nobody sees us, sometimes that's a wonderful opportunity to slip and slide from our precepts and our values. But he says, you know, the Buddhas know what was going on because of their omniscient minds. I've used this a number of times when nobody's watching, that they're not spying on us, you know, they're not going to deliver the blow but they're checking up to see if we are practicing well so they can help us. So this helps keep our personal integrity when there's nobody around to make judgments or give us feedback or point things out. So to remember that the omniscient mind of the Buddha, filled with incredible limitless compassion and wisdom, knows what we're creating, when we're creating it, and what is propelling us to create whatever karma we're doing. So that's a a nice way to hold the Buddha in mind when we're by ourselves. The other piece is that when our minds are inflamed and agitated and our actions of body, speech, and mind are in danger of causing suffering, we can act like a piece of wood, or as Geshe says, I love the the image of just being like a statue. Hold our tongue, keep our hands to ourselves to avoid creating negative karma, which we will pay for by our present actions sometime in the future. So becoming a statue is not a bad idea when we find ourselves triggered by all sorts of situations, all those sentient beings out there that are just walking by, but something happens, and best thing to just hold ourselves still. So the wisdom of restraint and vigilance is what the first part of this chapter is really about to avoid negativities. And that I happen to have always remembered and loved the analogy of the leather, (laughs) that... um, that because it is our minds that determine the course of our lives and not others or the world, that we are the guardians of it, that Shanti Dave's analogy of the love and the earth 
says it all as far as I'm concerned. So verse 13 and 14 say, where could I possibly find enough leather with which to cover the surface of the earth? Having leather on just the soles of my shoes is equivalent to covering the earth with it. Likewise, it is not possible for me to counter things externally, but should I counteract this mind of mine, what is the need for counteracting others? So analogy of leather, I was thinking that it's kind of like we're trying to relate to the world through some form of self-defense, you know, in order to protect ourselves from the external events that we don't have any control over, the people that disturb us, that harm us, that don't do what we want. That is, it's really this untenable mental process. If I could just cover the earth with leather, I could go about my own business and not worry about these other beings. But we can't control the three doors of others. We can't control their afflictions or the karma ripening at any given time for anybody. It's not tenable. So the whole construct of putting leather or trying to make everything okay by making, by trying to be in control of things that are not in our control is like trying to put leather all over the surface of the planet, which is just a crazy thought. Instead, by putting leather just on the soles of our shoes will be sufficient enough to walk the world with ease. All right, so taking care of our own minds, keeping our precepts and values, being ever vigilant, we will be able to walk and engage the world with ease, regardless of how others are behaving, how other, how, regardless how others are speaking or thinking. It is a very suitable and practical, virtuous form of self-protection by guarding our own minds. It's user-friendly. It's something that we can update at any given moment. And it really does refrain us from um, creating a lot of suffering in the future. So that's kind of the, the, the pieces that I garnered from that first half of the verses that Venerable Seppel did last week. The second half, verses 59 to 108, we're going to talk about the second and the third group of disciplines for developing um, ethical conduct, which is referring to the accumulation of merit to garner virtue. And the third one is to accomplish the welfare of others or to benefit sentient beings. So then I get into, started looking at the, the, the verses, and I just think that Shanti Deva is going to start right off on talking to us about all the wonderful things we can do to gather merit and all the wonderful things we can do to benefit others. And he says, well, we have a problem here that we're going to address right off the bat, and it's this preoccupation, attachment, infatuation with these bodies of ours. Because he states very clearly that this is a huge obstacle for training in ethical conduct whether it's restraining from creating negative karma, from gathering virtue or benefiting others, our preoccupation and infatuation with these bodies of ours are huge obstacles being able to do that. And he's pretty graphic on how best to see them for what they are. Now, like how much attachment do we really have to them? How much time do we spend caring for them to look at the reality of them? And why are we so hooked to them? I mean, from the time we're born, we've got these bodies. Now, this is, this is the process that I had when I got this first take from Shanti Dave, even before we started with the verses. My first response was a little bit of pushback. Okay, here's my excuse run. Well, I'm a monastic. This is not an issue for me. I've worked through, I don't embellish my body. I don't decorate it. I don't perfume it. I don't color my hair. I don't color my nails. 
I don't spend hardly any money on perfumes, hair coloring, shampoos. I don't go to the gym. I don't go to the vacation. I don't lie on the beach. I'm not that attached anymore to this body. This is not an issue for me. And then I think, you know, Sam K, <laughs> until you are a corpse, you still have your sense faculties functioning. It may not be the intense pleasure of the body or somebody else's body, but you've got to look at this. So as a monastic, we may not have that many sense distractions, but I still, I'm going to do two confessions here. I still cannot, I still, I'm excited when I hear that Venerable Sultram is going to make pizza for lunch and we're going to have her homemade pumpkin bread with ice cream. There's a little bit of pleasure, anticipatory pleasure happening in the body, mostly on the gustatory, a little bit of olfactory, some visual. And I also have, I have to admit this, is that I find delight anticipating, after I've been in the forest, it's been raining kind of chilly out there, and mosquitoes have been kind of nuts, is I'm going to take a hot shower when I get back. And I ended up laundering my sheets for the first time in two months. So tonight, I'm going to have a clean body. I'm going to have clean sheets. It's going to be raining tonight. I'll get into my bed, snuggle up. Maybe I'll read a Dharma book. Maybe I'll read, a, I don't know, something, a biography or something. That is total attachment to the comfort of this body. So those are two of mine. Despite the renunciation, despite no perfumes, no hair coloring. I mean, and I bet all of you have got one or two of these things. Anybody want to give a, a true confession on what renunciate life, what the body still looks like, what you still deal with? Anybody got to want to share? Yeah, only Semke. She's the only one has got a problem. <laughs> I like my heating pad at, at night. It's for my it used to be for my back, but no, I just like the heat. <laughs> okay. Okay. Anybody else? One more. I love smelling the flowers and watching the sunrise. Yeah. The pleasure of the visual consciousness. Yes. Now, what attachment has become also, I'm, I'm willing to look at, is fretting and worrying about this body. My back. Oh, my gosh. What did I do again? A cough, a sneeze, a muscle pull, an upset stomach. So it's fretting. Fretting is a form of attachment. Worrying is a form of attachment. Anxiety on whether this cough is bronchitis or the back has got some serious issues or I just pulled something. And this is not an age-related phenomena. I think this is a sangha phenomena that we can fret about the body and become preoccupied more about the comfort of it no, not so much the intense pleasure of being attracted and, and decorating it, but there's a level of comfort when all those other worldly distractions are out there. There's still this comfort zone that the strategy is much more subtle. The finesse is much more um, skilled, but the attachment of the body is still there. So, so Chanti Davis starts off with, well, if you're you know, why are you unhappy? Your body's going to get dragged here and there, taken away by vultures, attached to this flesh. Why are you bothering? Why are you taking so much care about it when it's going to get burned, it's going to get cremated, it's going to get put in a hole somewhere? Why do you spend so much time thinking about it now? And do you really think 
that you are this, that you are this I, this putrid filled sack, that is who you are. It'd be better for you to hold on to something wooden, something clean, something that doesn't have a smell about it. I mean, what is the point of guarding this rotting machine that is a collection of filth? Now, he's kind of direct with his verbiage. So there are excuses that we have. And Geshe Yeshe Tutin, this is the wonderful, uh, the, the wonderful practitioner in Dharamsala that Venerable has referred to a number of times, the one that used to have the uneven shummed up, the stubbles on his chin and the socks around his ankles. Well, he was a great, great practitioner. And he says, yes, we do have some excuses on why we are attached to the body. So the first one, he says, well, we might protest that we need to take care of this body because it's useful to us. But we think this is only because we are incapable of reflecting correctly. Otherwise, we would know that we are slaves to our bodies. In spite of our attachment to the body, we will have to leave it at the moment of death when it will be of little help to us. So despite what they are made of, I mean, there's all this attachment. We can run with it. We can drive a car. We can eat meals. We can sleep in soft beds. We can pet the cats. There's a lot of usefulness to this body. And in spite of the attachment, this excuse, you know, at the time of death and the body goes that way and our minds go that way, the whole logic of the usefulness of the body simply falls apart. There's no more petting cats. There's no more vacations. There's no more walking in the woods. There's no more riding bicycles. There's no more taking showers. It's separated. And so the usefulness no longer applies. The logic no longer applies. It's gone. And, and he says we, we think of these excuses because we don't realize how we, have, we are slaves to the body's needs and wants and desires and input and output. So he says that's why we need to make these more logical, reasonable excuses because we don't want to look at the fact that we are totally um, chained to it and totally enslaved by its needs. So that's the first excuse we might use. The second one... Is, uh, he says, another one is that we have been with this body for a really long time, and casting away our attachment is not an easy thing to do. Like, give me a break. I have established the existence of I on the basis of this body, considering it to be its physical expression. It is not an assemblage of slimy, gutsy, pooey parts. It is a physical expression of who I am and needs to be cared for and respected. It's an expression of who I am. I am attached to this body, not that piece of wood. That piece of wood has no meaning to this I. So just the whole idea that we have built an identity around this. And I know that this is a big one, you know, for me. But it, to, he's challenging the whole construct of mind because we know what happens when we put mind on anything and the body has got the biggest mind sign on it and why it's so hard for us to even look at it as it exists, as it really is, because we've got so much identification, we've got so much investment in it. So then Shanti Jiva says, okay, okay, let's, set, let's, let's mentally take it apart. Let's see if it's useful. Let's see if there's an essence in there somewhere. And so for the next verses, 62, 63, 64, 65, He's like, let's take it apart. What's underneath that skin? Nothing worth being attached to. I mean, it just shows the level of our ignorance in the fact that we see it as pure 
That's the one thing he says. But if there's any conclusion that I come to, you're going to see how deep the ignorance is. Why do I cling to this? I can't eat it. I can't drink the blood. I can't suck the intestines. <laughs> it serves no purpose. And there's no, nobody home if we were to take it apart. Venable's done this with the eyeballs and the skin and the nails and the hair. She's put it all over the table here. She said, now, where are you? You know, where, where is the eye? So then in Venerable's commentary, you know, she's just all excited about Shanti Davis' uh, verses here. No holes barred. She says, how come some bags of filth are more famous than others <laughs> and do a certain job better because of the shape of them, the size of them? How come some can climb mountains and, and race across ski slopes? These bags of filth, how come, what makes that body so different? Same filth, same process. What's going on there? Or they make $30 million a year with their bag of filth. How does that work? Or they parade it across the stage, or they sell cosmetics and paint their toes, or they run really fast in their sack of filth and they get so much money. What is that about? And then she goes into her second favorite little um, description is that it's chicken skin. There's <laughs> nothing but chicken skin. Have you ever seen raw chicken skin? It looks, well, it looks a lot like my skin. I'm not, not sure about yours. She says, some of us look more like peacocks than chickens, and you get paid a lot of money for looking more like a peacock than a chicken. But if we lack the feather, she says, we just put rocks on these things, dangling lapis lazuli, diamonds, pearls, anything to enhance the chicken skin. So once again, Ashanti Davis, she's trying to show us how unaware we are of what this body is and how we don't have a clue what we're doing, embellishing it, Nothing but to benefit or to enhance the impression that there's this beautiful thing. So ludicrous, but true. So what I wanted to do here, because this meditation, you know, the foulness of the body comes in the four distortions. It comes in the mindfulness of the body. It comes in again in further chapters in Shanti Deva's text here. I wanted to take a poll to find out where all of us are at the level of understanding this meditation, to dismantle, to take off the skin, to look at the body as it really is. So I've got four options here. All right. And just raise your hand if you're anywhere in the zone. Okay. The first one is, okay, I've been doing this meditation for a while and I'm beginning to see Shanti Deva's point, the bag of filth I'm starting because I look at, when I get attracted to others, when I look at my body and I take it apart, I'm starting to understand, man, there's just a lot of this disgusting stuff. I mean, there's nothing there, nothing there worth being attached to, being crazy about, being obsessed about, that my attachment to the body is actually decreasing. I'm starting to have my mind line up with reality. Is there anybody in this group that really uses this meditation and sees the attachment to the body actually declining, that you use this as a main practice? Or um, one that's really starting to turn the mind. Okay. All right. A few folks. Okay. Second option. You're in slight denial. You're in reality mode some of the time. Okay? So when you've got the flu... You've just come out of major surgery, you've got diarrhea, you've got vomiting, you've got a cold, you've got stuff coming out of your nose, your body hurts, you kind of go, 
God, Shanti David might have been right. <laughs> Maybe there's something true about what he's saying because stuff's coming out. I'm in pain. I've got this, these stitches and the scars and these bandages. But then there's, you know, but then there's this Venerable Solstrom's pizza and the pumpkin pie and the hot shower and the, the smell of the flowers. You know, God, the senses, they just give me a sense of pleasure. So it's sort of like 50-50. Sometimes we're in the uh, unpleasant feelings. Shanti David kind of makes sense. But then when we're in the okay feeling, pleasant feelings, the body ain't that bad. Who's in that category? I'm kind of, I'm, <laughs> okay, kind of that category. Okay, third category. And a lot of people think this, and I had this point. The body is an amazing miracle. It is a structure of complex, intricate systems, processes, atomic structures, incredible capacity. A well-oiled machine does so many things. It is unbelievable. It is like the best thing that we have never been able to create anything like this dynamic, unique, complex system called the body. It is so beyond, beyond. Anybody got that thought? (laughs) including the brain this wonderful mechanism of oh waves and structures and neurology and nerve endings and man what a beautiful beautiful piece of art beautiful piece of science okay and then the last one is what do you mean a bag of filth this is who i am all right that's the that's the on the total opposite side anybody got up it's me yeah Okay, so we probably run everywhere from total repulsion to total uh, inharmony with this is who I am. Just checking, just checking people and see where they are. So that's what happens in those first eight verses. Shanti Dave is really trying to, to, you know, where are you? Because if you want to cultivate ethical conduct and have this virtuous life, the attachment to this body influences, filters, and, you know, make some noise when you want to go beyond just the pleasures of this life, the pleasures of this body. So then, after all the dissing of the body for good reason, he says, well, you know, the body of a human being should only be put to work or else it's no better off to feed the foxes and the vultures. That's the best thing for it. But if we can put it to work, then it's got some purpose. It supports our practice of virtue. So Shanti Dave is trying to bring us around as a slow process to go from transforming our relationship and our view of the body, attached, infatuated, preoccupied with its appearance, to turn it slowly, slowly for it to be able to be a tool of virtue, a tool of benefit, a tool of creating the substantial causes for awakening. But that's quite a I mean, that continuum could take a long, long time to work through, but that's where he's going. And Geshe Yeshe Tupton says, to put it to work for creating virtue is a thousand times more useful than any money we can save. And in that way, it is something to protect. All right, so you got, there's a shift that the mind's got to really turn that this body can become something very, very crucial in the long-term goal. It can help us fulfill our aspirations, first to free ourselves from lower rebirths by practicing within the form, with the mind embodied. It can also help us to attain liberation, ultimately awakening. So it's very valuable in that way. 
And then, okay, once again, he's coming back around. Even though you guard it thus, then what will you do when it is stolen by the merciless Lord of death and given to the birds and dogs or given to the uh, funeral home? So instead we guard, but if, instead we guard it with attachment this just, and the distortion of how it really exists. What will we do when Yama shows up? Okay, so he's trying to prepare us. We can't protect our bodies from death. It is inevitable. It's certain we don't know what time, which makes it kind of scary. And we're totally at the mercy of the Lord of death. So Shanti Deva is trying to prepare us for the inevitable meeting with Yama. This is an incredible kindness, these verses. Because imagine the kind of mind that we're all working on to try to just untangle, try to remove or lessen the attachment to this body as a source of pleasure, a source of identification with who I, we are. To imagine that we have not, we haven't dealt with this impermanence, we haven't dealt with this foulness, we haven't dealt with this disposability. When we start losing the connection at the time of death, when the consciousnesses start to separate, the terror that can arise, and we grasp at this body because we haven't seen it for what it is. It's not the source of happiness. It's not the source of pleasure. There could be moments of terror and the separation of death. So Shanti Deva's direct and kind of in-our-face reminder of what this body is about and how we need to use it appropriately and virtuously, he's trying to help us be prepared for the inevitability when we're going to be separated from this for good. And they're going to, when we die, we're going to get a fancy coffin. We're going to get a marble gravestone. We're going to get flowers. We're going to get, or we're going to get cremated. They're going to put our ashes in a lovely vern with our face on it. And they're going to come and visit it and put it in the garden or put it out in the ocean. That's where it ends up. So Shanti Davis says, let's make use while we have it in this way. I should conceive of my mind as a boat. Another beautiful analogy, a mere support of coming and going, and in order to accomplish the welfare of sentient beings to transform it into a wish-fulfilling body. So Geshe Yeshi Tubden has got some, he's got this beautiful thought. Let me read this on how to open our perspective on a different kind of body. And it goes with this verse. The practice of Dharma aimed at achieving permanent happiness and the possibility of attaining Buddhahood is based on this physical body, which is therefore important. Shantideva compares it to a ship we use to cross the ocean of suffering and reach the shore beyond. In spite of the Buddha's body's crucial role in acquiring definitive happiness, right? That's, we're talking awakening. We should not desire to possess a coarse body in our next rebirth, as this is the cause of suffering. Instead, we should strive to create the causes for acquiring more subtle forms which do not produce suffering. Okay, so if we're not getting to awakening this life, we can create the causes to have a body that is not going to be continually suffering, continually harangued with the, do, the three kinds of dukkha. The types of bodies that we have are the basis of suffering, and we should not therefore be too pleased with them. The bodies of bodhisattvas derive from their compassion and their prayers, 
And unlike ours, they do not create new causes for suffering. The body of a Buddha, finally, is of a mental nature. We may think, but if the physical body is no longer present, how can we possibly exist? Here's, here's Geshe Tupta. My suggestion is not to worry about this, because we will have other better forms on which to base our existence in the future. At present, our concern is to set ourselves free from a coarse body that gets old, sick, die, ages. When we obtain a subtler body, which will not be a cause of suffering, we will no longer it will no longer be necessary to worry about ridding ourselves of it. We should think of our bodies as boats, a simple vehicle for coming and going, transforming them into wish-fulfilling gems for the benefit of others. I find that whole concept pretty helpful. You know, it's, for me, it's going to be a long time to become a Buddha. But along the way, you know, when we get into these higher realms and get to be bodhisattvas, the suffering of the body, the bodies become lighter. They become mental bodies. They become really the sources of joy, the sources of benefit, and not so harangued by this falling apartness of the bodies that we have. So I found that little section there to be extremely helpful for me as I get angst about, you know, having this body go away. Uh, let's see. Okay, so then we're getting up into verse 70. We're starting to look at, um, and also, too, we won't have any, no more teen years. Just imagine, no more teen years. No more, no Alzheimer's, no bad eyesight, no struggle about having to keep your weight in line. So there's something positive about not having these bodies that get old, sick, suffer, and die. So next, in order to accomplish the welfare of sentient beings, transforming these bodies into wish-fulfilling, should be not, we should be knowledgeable about accomplishing virtue by performing ordinary activities beautifully. How to act when encountering others. So this is where I thought Shanti David was going to start off with. But he went through this whole preliminary about, you know, working on the body first so we could really enter into gathering virtue and benefiting others with a mind that's maybe a little bit not so attached to the happiness and the pleasures of the body. So now we're talking about now while I have freedom, what am I going to do with this? Now that I have this body to serve, I will always be pre present a smiling face. I will cease to frown. I should be a friend of migrating beings and be straightforward. I should desist from inconsiderately and noisily moving chairs around and so forth, violently opening doors, always delight in humility. Be stealthful like a cat, a stork, moving silently, are able to accomplish what we desire by behaving in this way. So here, I'm going to turn into some of Venerable's commentary on this because she spends a lot of time talking about how we can use our bodies, how we need to use our speech to create virtue and to benefit. So she begins by talking about how smiling when you think of the kindness of sentient beings. And you know, it's kind of hard because she says to watch your facial expression, your body language. But a lot of times we don't have access to that unless we're looking in the mirror. So sometimes I can gauge a what I'm presenting by the look on the people's faces that is coming back at me, all right? So if there's a little bit of a like that or a little bit of a like that, chances are the body language and the facial expression is probably a little bit more demonic and wrathful and afflicted than the, vo the voice may be saying. 
So she said to really try to be aware of the way we stand, the way we sit, the way we present ourselves. And she says, we think of Dharma as incredibly profound philosophy, but it is also a very practical daily life expression of ourselves to the world without saying a word. So she really gets into talking about how we walk through space. Is my body language indicative of my fear, indicative of my anxiety? Am I pissed off and I'm really presenting that? Or am I understanding? Am I open-hearted? Am I ready to listen? A lot of how we meet somebody with our bodies and our faces says a lot. With respect, I should gratefully accept unsought-for words that are of benefit and that wisely advise and admonish me. At all times, I should be the pupil of everyone. And she spends a lot of time on this one. And I don't know, maybe it's a Western thing. I don't know. Geshe-la, do Tibetans talk a lot about un- unsolicited advice as an issue? Do Tibetans worry about feedback and advice, or is it just a Western thin skin thing? Yeah, they do not volunteer to give. They hold back from giving unsolicited advice or like that. So, so in a way, I think even in the Vinaya also it says, right, even when it comes to Dharma sharing also, unsolicited Dharma sharing is not that, not that appreciated. Mm-hmm. It needs to be solicited first and then. So there should be a receptivity in the first place. Uh, so I think even in the culture also, unsolicited advice is not that much expected and also volunteered and appreciated. Okay. But, you know, I think that's probably we are encouraged to do, but I think maybe as Westerners, because we have opinions about everything, that it comes without asking. It comes without <laughs> wanting. Um, I think we just have we just have thoughts and ideas about so many things, and including other people's behavior. So um, it's not appreciated, but it still happens a lot. So um, she's so this is all about feedback, how to be able to hear other people's ideas and opinions and suggestions with humility and ground, gratitude. And she says, while this happens, to be able to grow our own discernment, we have blind sides of ourselves. We don't see some of our faults. The people who live with us and work with us see them far more clearly than we do. But when somebody gives us advice or feedback, you know, to really cultivate this mind of discernment that on one hand stays open enough to ask ourselves, okay, I'm getting some feedback here. Is this going to help me on the path, what I'm hearing right now? Do I trust that this person means well? I mean, there's sometimes, you know, depending on the relationship, who that person is. What kind of lesson can I learn? What kind of karma will I create by following this advice? So does it align with my Dharma values or does it align with my eight worldly concerns? So part of accepting feedback and part of this introspective awareness and mindfulness and cultivating our ethical conduct is that we learn a discernment on what actually is beneficial, 
what we, what has an element of truth to it, no matter what what's coming at us. Chances are, my experience is there's always a kernel of truth, no matter how angry somebody is with me, no matter how somebody's upset with me. There's always a little kernel of truth in there somewhere. It's got it's filled with a lot of emotion, but there's sometimes a, an element of truth. And that we can view these, as she says, <laughs> this is we can aspire for, I can aspire for, is to grow our own wisdom so that others' advice can be helpful. And particularly when it's handed and lands not so skillfully, it's, it's doled out not so skillfully. And that she also says that part of the receiving of opinion and advice and suggestions is that our self-centered thought, our ego doesn't like to be unmasked. And sometimes feedback does exactly that. So it's good to see what is true in us. And sometimes people's feedback is spot on. You know, they know us well enough. They've seen it over and over again. And they see how much we suffer. We see how much it impacts others. And they're willing to step out there and give us the feedback. Be a student of everyone because we can learn different things from different situations and people. And she has said this on a number of occasions. I have found this to be helpful too internally is that we can also see others and their behavior on what we look like when we gripe, when we complain, when we're angry about the smallest thing or whatever situations arise, where we scold people, where we are condescending, where we act badly, how we look. So other people's actions, behaviors can be wonderful gauges of our own behavior. I don't, you know, I aspire not to be like that. I'm going to make sure that I don't, or maybe I do. And now I see what it looks like on the receiving end. So to need to be aware of situations where we get really, really clear that other people's behavior can be a source of teaching, can be a source of example of how not to be and to really use our vigilance and mindfulness in that way. So they can become really wonderful teachers because they're showing us what not to do. She goes on to say, this is the same verse, instead of being critical and judgmental, to look at our minds, to make sure that deceit and pretension are not playing themselves out. That how do we fudge and manipulate the truth or circumstances? Where do we lie? Where do we deceive? And, you know, it can be something so finesse that is like minimizing a bad behavior, minimizing a fault, kind of blowing it off, joking about it, or exaggerating a good quality, enhancing it probably more than it actually played itself out. So she said to really be very, very vigilant of the times in which we fudge, strategize, manipulate. And, to, and she says, if we see others doing it, to get a sense of how we might look. If we're sulking, we close down, we turn away from people. Because we feel, she says, if I feel misunderstood and undervalued, she says, said, we have to get over that. It is not others disrespecting us, but it is saying that I have an ego around what I say. And when, what I say is not heard, it's not understood, it's not taken seriously, it's dismissed. There's an investment of the self-centered thought. I mean, there's a need to be hurt, but there's also a need to be right. 
and they kind of get commingled a lot. So she said, just to be aware through introspective awareness, mindfulness, this discernment process that we, we gain through ethical conduct is to make sure that, you know, what, what is it that I'm, I'm wanting here? You know, what is it that I'm expecting to receive if I, if I think I'm being misunderstood or not heard? What's, what's the investment? What is it that, that needs to be said? What am I looking for? She says to be really, and to see that the way in which we react and respond in the world really impacts the energy in the world, the cold vibe of anger, the cold vibe of pulling back, the, the clinginess of attachment and needing approval. And, um, she just said to just really be careful and vigilant to understand that, you know, the way that we judge other people when they're afflicted, to be careful to recognize that that sometimes is a mirror for ourselves. So this is a lot of transparency, a lot of self-assessment, a lot of self-evaluation, highly regarded qualities of mind when we're trying to develop ethical conduct. Verse 75, and I should say, virtuously said all those who speak well. And if I see someone creating merit, I should praise them and be well pleased. So this, once again, to be able to create virtue, to, um, to counteract the negative states of mind, is to be gladdened by others' virtue, their good deeds and their successes. And to be very vigilant of making sure that jealousy or competition doesn't arise. This is such... You know, I, once again, I'm not going to blame our culture, but sometimes there's this competition, this comparing, evaluating, you know, how, how, what's, where's, where's everybody lining up from top to bottom? And instead of just being so overjoyed that somebody's getting an opportunity, somebody's cultivating the good quality, somebody has made some headway through a serious struggle that they've had, and you can really see the transformation, is to really to be able to be gladdened by others' virtue. And that sentient beings do not need to be framed in categories of who is important and who gets served. We serve our teachers because of their depth of their practice, but we also make it a daily practice to point out the good qualities, the skillful means, the kindness, the generosity of others, instead of being jealous, finding faults, finding something else that they're not up to the task for. Yes, but can come into the, into the mental factor of jealousy. We can, you know, yes, that's great, that's wonderful, but did you see what they did yesterday? Or did you hear what they said? Or there's this yes, but that can arise out of a jealous mind. So she said, make sure that that is continually checked to give ourselves an assignment of praising others, pointing out their good qualities at least once a day. And what happens, he says, this is totally this, you know, if you want to be selfish, be wisely selfish, praise others. Say something good about their good qualities. It makes the mind so happy. I should discreetly talk about the good qualities and repeat those recounted. If my own good qualities are spoken about, I should just know and beware that I have them. So here we're, we have heard about other people's good qualities. Um, and Venerable says, you know, let's be discreet about that because once again, the self-centered thought could impose itself. Don't make a big show of it like you're trying to convert someone. Or maybe we want to try to be generous and magnanimous in our praise. We want to be thought well of, so we're going to praise somebody. So it's not about praising their good qualities. It's showing ourselves as magnanimous and generous in our, in our, in our good qualities and our, and our willingness to praise others. 
So they say, person, okay, let's say Joe praises Sue to us. Then we approach Sue and say, I've heard that yesterday, and I rejoice. And be really, really specific. Venerable says, describe the behavior very specifically so the person knows what behavior they do is useful. And this is where we become real inspiration to, our, to each other, real Dharma friends to each other, is not only to point out the faults and give advice because we love people, but to be also to be able to praise them and to be gladdened and to point out specifically when they are... Um, when they're creating virtue. You know, we are the beneficiaries of their virtue. That's another piece, is to be able to start thinking about that. And then when people praise us, once again, to think that the Buddha is in our heart and that that praise is being directed to them or to our teachers who have taught us the Dharma so we can have some of these good qualities. Verse 78, I shall suffer no losses in this life, and in future lives I shall find great happiness. But misdeeds will make me unhappy and bring suffering, and in future lives I shall find great suffering. So this is pretty much how to look at when losses come, when you know, when karma ripens, when feedback comes, is to not judge others and point out their faults, because instead praise them. So this is this is karma. This is the wheel of sharp weapons coming back. So if we're getting feedback, we're getting criticism, don't be so surprised. This is the wheel of sharp weapons turning back from all the criticism, the judgmental mind, the condescension, the blaming that we've done in previous lives. So it's not just happening now. This is a ripening result. And that we can learn from the situation, you know, what kind of behavior has brought this result of getting feedback, of getting our teacher pointing out our faults, particularly either in public or in you know the world world audience or even just doing it one on one you know what is the cause of getting this kind of feedback and having the criticism come to see it as helpful to see it as is it true and if it is it is the will of sharp weapon for just being too free in my own judgment too free in my own criticism of others And it's a great opportunity to really start ceasing a bad habit of, you know, uh, divisive speech, harmful speech. And then she says to do taking and giving meditation in response. So to go back and to think of all the, the, all the people, all the lifetimes that we have given criticism, judged people, blamed people, harmed people with any form of speech or action of our body. And then to, to, to go to that self-centered thought that keeps trying to badmouth and judge. And uh, it's a really beautiful way to sort of heal that mind and to break the habit. And here's where she said that Geshe Yeshe Tupton, when he used to teach the same wonderful teacher, all the thought training teachings and karma teachings are so important. He used to teach on karma when he used to teach in Italy. He, every time he came, he showed up, whether it was the continuation of a teaching he had been given, he just is revisiting, or there's, he's, there's a new person in the group, it doesn't matter. He will teach back on karma no matter where he is in the Lam Rim, no matter who's in the audience, he would come back to teaching karma. It is so fundamental on living a good life and understanding the whole way, grounds, paths, and fruits of the path, work on creating causes. So this verse is really talking about if we want the causes of happiness, Let's figure out how to do that. If we want the results of you know, happiness in the future, let's figure out how to do that. And if we want to avoid the, the, the results of unhappiness, 
let's figure that out. And this is within, you know, the, the, the accumulation of virtue, the, the gathering of virtue and of benefiting others, sending us on creating the causes for happiness in the future. So once again, we're turning, turning the mind, turning the mind, making another choice and really taking whatever comes at us as an opportunity to train and to change. Okay. When talking, I should speak from my heart and what is related, making the meaning clear and the speech pleasing. I should abandon attachment or hatred and speak in gentle tones appropriately. That's a tall order. Speak from the heart, what is related, clear speech, pleasing speech, abandoning attachment or hatred, speaking in gentle tones appropriately. So here's Venerable's take on that. Does not mean we say everything we think and feel, but to always come from a good heart, which includes bringing up things that are difficult, painful. We speak it from our own good hearts, taking responsibility for our part of it, our part of whatever the difficult exchange is, instead of blaming people and setting on course, you know, I'm having all this suffering because of you, is to really use a kind heart in these difficult situations. And fundamentally to concentrate what are our motivations, not what other people's motivations are <laughs> when they come to us with difficult situations, difficult exchanges, is what is my motivation when I go into this exchange, when I go into the situation, when I go to see my family, when I go to work, when I go into town, what is my motivation? And to keep our language and vocabulary simple, have a better chance of being understood. So, you know, if you like to tell a tall tale, like to, you know, go into detail, that may not be beneficial a lot of the time. So to keep things simple. Um, speaking with greed or attachment, it's pretty much attachment to outcomes. So what I'm saying in this exchange, I want it to be kind, but I want to come out on top. I want things to go my way. So it's really important to, to see if we've got an attachment to how an exchange is going to go. That I want, If it's to be a benefit, to be able to make sure that, you know, both are recipients of some kind of benefit is one thing. But to go in there hoping to be right, to be able to convince somebody, to debate somebody, to come to the conclusion that's yours, that is not, <laughs> that's not helpful. It creates bad feelings, creates fear, and, and also breaks trust that people can't come to us because we're wanting to power over and be right. And it makes the, the situation, they, they don't want to come to us anymore when things get tough because they, they're continually put on the defense. They're continually having to explain themselves. So she's really saying, let go of the attachment to outcome. Um, she comes back around and says our tone of voice, the look on our faces says a lot. <laughs> Keep an eye, you know, just maybe just feel the face, you know, if the brow is, is crunched, the, the eyes are squinted, the mouth is pursed, and you're really leaning into the person, chances are you might want to back away and settle down again. I mean, there's a, I have found myself, <clears throat> I think sometimes when I'm, when I'm with Venerable Lamsa, she's just so direct and she keeps coming back around, you know, and sometimes I just lean into her, you know, I just try to power over her because she's just so clear on what she needs. And uh, I, she's really good because when she comes back around and we revisit the situation, I can kind of bring my body back down to just an, uh, a receptive place because she's really 
wanting to connect, you know? But the first time around, I just love powering over her. I'm going to make the first, first confession, you know? Because we're, so, we're both very, very strong-minded, you know? And I want it to go my way. And we both want the same thing. We come to the same conclusion. But she comes back around and gives me the opportunity to just chill. And then I hear what she has to say, and it's like, I can do that, you know? But I don't know, maybe sometimes there's just this mutual urgency of making a point or something. But um, there's, there's something about living community that we have many opportunities to revisit relationships with each other. And sometimes they go well, sometimes they don't. But changing the body language and the look on the face can go a long way to being receptive and, and listening. So Venerable Lumsel's really very good about coming back around and giving me two or three chances to, to, for her to be heard. Okay. Um, when beholding someone with my eyes, thinking, I shall attain Buddhahood by depending upon this being, I should look at him candidly, look at them candidly with love. So Venerable says, this is true metta. This is not just ordinary metta. We are really moving into generating bodhicitta based on this wish for them to be happy, to look at them with the eyes of love. And I will attain awakening dependent upon them so that I can benefit them. I depend on them for my awakening. I've got to get myself out of samsara first, always keeping in mind their welfare. This is just a beautiful, beautiful verse. And she says, okay, this includes the bugs, this includes the ticks, this includes the mosquitoes, the lice, the cicadas. My awakening depends on this little being. And that consciousness born in that body this is, a, this is a very interesting way to think sometimes because we've got these guys all around the place. Is that consciousness has Buddha nature? This is mind-blowing to think of that little aphid on the kale plant or that little snowshoe rabbit we have who seems to take delight in being with us these days, that she has Buddha nature, that she right at this moment is merely designated on that body and mind, but will not be that bunny forever, will not be that bug forever. This is a temporary karmic appearance. And so we, so in the future, we can have a different relationship with them to use these situations when we encounter different beings to make a karmic connection and make this statement to ourselves. So whether we're meeting the person at the food bank, the person at the bank, <laughs> the bunny in the road is... I shall attain Buddhahood by depending upon you. Thank you. And to hold them with love. That would change the entire course of our day. Always being motivated by affection or being motivated by the antidotes in the fields of excellent qualities, benefit, and suffering, great virtue will come about. So here Shanti Davis saying, okay, by being motivated by bodhicitta, this beautiful vast mind, or being motivated by the four opponent powers. You know, being very cognizant that we have some repairing to do in our relationships. And there are three fields of relationships that we deal with on a, in our life's journey. 
The first one is the field of excellent and superior qualities. This is the three jewels. This is our teachers. These are our spiritual mentors. Needing to repair whatever damage we've done in those relationships, being motivated by our love and our respect for them, being motivated by our regret, <laughs> our wish to repair that relationship. The field of benefit, like our parents and our caretakers, all those who we have directly been benefited by. That's another big, huge field of merit, the field of benefit. And then the third one, which is probably the biggest field we have, is the field of misery or suffering, those impoverished or those in need. All of them become the field in which we extend our bodhicitta, motivated by our regret and our antidotes. When we are benefiting sentient beings, we are still serving the three jewels. We are still serving our teachers. That's the beautiful thing, is the overlay of the three jewels, no matter whether it's the, the field of benefit, the field of suffering, the field of superior qualities. We are always serving the three jewels if we have this bodhicitta motivation or this deep, sincere wish to repair and to really move forward on the relationship. And this is a very good mind to have, Venerable says, when we act or speak. So we have all these opportunities during the course of the day to be able to cultivate the merit. Because we have these fields just surrounding, surrounding, whirling around us all the time. I should always perform actions endowed with skill and joy. And all actions I should not depend upon anybody else. Okay, so Venerable, once again, we're checking our motivation. Are we working for sentient beings doing it with joy or a mind of obligation? Our attitude can go either way. We can be miserable working for sentient beings or we can be really joyful. And she says, is it true that we don't have a choice about our attitude? Are we really puppets on a string? Do people really control our lives? She said to really challenge that when we feel like other people are causing us suffering. And she says, bodhisattvas love being around complaining and resentful people. Okay, that's a good indicator of where I am on the path. <laughs> because she says, when we start off a chain of suffering by being unhappy about something, and we tell someone about how unhappy we are about something, and that person happens to tell somebody else who then gets unhappy when they hear about unhappy we are about something, and tells another person who's tired of your complaining and then tells them. I mean, it's just this domino rolling snowball down the hill. So when we, when we want to kvetch, I think we either have to set a motivation on what, the, what is the need that we're trying to meet to entrust it with somebody who's going to be able to hold us with some tolerance and some fortitude and, to under, and, and uncover what is the need for this need to, to talk about the pain and suffering we're experiencing. Um, and then we go into the way to train in the ethics of working for the benefit of sentient beings. Um, kind of a little bit of everything here. Um, Shanti Davis says, well, one of the best one devoting oneself to the welfare of others is the practice of generosity, gathering virtue, benefiting them through material generosity. I should divide my food amongst those who have fallen into error those without protection, and those abiding in modes of conduct, and eat merely what is suitable for myself, except for the three robes I may give everything away. 
We share our food with animals, hungry ghosts, those in need. We share what we eat and what is sufficient for ourselves. So once again, this is a whole discipline unto itself. It has, it has a strong relationship to the attachment to the body, <laughs> um, our fretting, our worrying, our sense pleasures. That Shanti David Venerable, keep our body well, keep it at a good weight, you know, keep it healthy, keep it nourished, and take care of all the other beings in the meantime. And this is not mutually exclusive. We can take care of everybody in need, and we can also take care of ourselves. And when it comes to what we actually own, our shamdap, our chugu, and our namjar. Think of that. The only things we ever need to keep with us are those three things. So those carry-on bags on the plane, <laughs> that's, that's it. You know? Verse 86 and verse 87, this body that is for practicing the sublime dharma should not be harmed for only slight benefit. If I behave in this way, the wishes of all beings will be quickly fulfilled. Those whose attitude of compassion is impure should not give their body away. No matter what, both in this and future lives, they should give it as cause for fulfilling the great purpose. So here we're just really talking about the two extremes of indulgence and asceticism. So we go either to one way or the other. And I think sometimes part of our spiritual journey in our exploration of what works for us spiritually, we might go on to spiritual paths that call for some real ascetic practices and giving up things and fasting and doing all sorts of extremes. And then there's the other spiritual paths, which talk about indulging the self, you know, with all sorts of positive affirmations and making things happen. I don't know. There's, there's an extreme. And we want to find somewhere in the middle of the road, just as we need, you know. And, and it's very clear, if we don't have realizations, we don't give our body away. Not a good idea. We can plant a lot of good seeds, accumulate a lot of merit to just to have the thought, may I one day have the kind of strength, the kind of virtue, the kind of understanding of emptiness that I can actually do this without any sense of loss. But, you know, that's going to be a while for at least me. I mean, we can give an organ, we can give blood. That's a kind of a, a nice way to do this symbolically is to donate. But until we reach that stage, we don't really go there. And there's, uh, Venerable says, there is a teaching that says, you know, as far as putting ourselves as organ do donors on our licenses, there's a, a conversation about that. You know, when they harvest the organs, they do that immediately after the death of somebody. Is our consciousness still in the body? Or has it left? There's an ongoing discussion about whether to be an organ donor or not. She didn't go much into detail about that. But what will help us to fulfill our great purpose at this present capacity? All right. So once again, lining up with where are we now in our practice? What is it that we can give? Every This is at every way along the path, our capacity grows and changes especially our minds as they change more toward the Dharma, our capacity to give more, to share the Dharma more, the practice of the generosity of giving love, giving fearlessness. So once again, we've got to be really discerning about where we are on the path as far as our capacity goes. And then we go into a series of just a number of these verses that talk about how we should, um, when we share the Dharma, who we share the Dharma with, 
This is, of course, the best generosity is to be able to give the Dharma. That's the most precious form of generosity that there is. But then Shantideva goes through a few ways of things that we should probably be keep an eye on. Uh, the Dharma should not be explained to those who lack respect, who disdain it, who don't respect the teachings, or are cynical, or we just want to, you know, they, they just have no interest. Those who wear particular, anybody who wears um, a hat on their head, uh, holding weapons, those with covered heads, just as a sign of respect, you want to make sure, at least in the Dharma, there are different spiritual traditions where you wear a hat on your head as a sign of respect for the Dharma. When you're receiving teachings, you remove whatever head covering you have. Um, should be taught, should not be taught to somebody that we're attracted to. There's a line in there that says that you, the vast and profound Dharma should not be taught to lesser beings, nor to a woman unaccompanied by a man. Out of respect for the Dharma or lesser and supreme beings as equal, I should utilize all. Venerable translates this. If someone you are attracted to, best not to teach them, particularly in private or alone. <laughs> um, teaching very complicated, profound Dharma to people who don't, don't have the foundation, aren't even interested we can speak about love, we can speak about compassion, we can speak about generosity, ethical conduct, but as far as the more profound things like emptiness, even bodhicitta, they can be a little bit complex and could cause some confusion. So his holiness relates at the heart level. He doesn't get into doctrine, he doesn't get into philosophy, he doesn't get into debating anybody. It's really mostly about um, loving kindness, compassion. Uh, let's see... We shouldn't um, spit, throw away tooth sticks, urinate in the forest. Here, don't urinate in the forest. We have all sorts of beings that live in the forest that we probably can't see to treat it as a home to other beings. Um, some of these are in our Pradhyamoksha precepts, how to eat. Don't fill our mouth. Don't eat noisily with our mouths wide open, putting in more than we can chew. <laughs> Don't sit with our legs stretched out, particularly towards sacred objects. Sitting on high bed seats, expensive seats up on high beds. Um, don't sit with, for us monastics, don't sit with folks of the, the opposite sex or the, the sex that, the gender that you're attracted to, you know, too close. Um, and, and when we go to different countries, there's going to be culturally appropriate or inappropriate ways in which we behave. So we've got to be very, very aware and sensitive to that. Um, yeah, some of these are just more culturally, just basically, let's not be wild and uncontrolled in our gestures. <laughs> you know, expressing wild, wildly and gesturing uncontrollably, making, you know, making gestures with our hands and not pointing at things, but being much more gentle, snapping the fingers. I don't know something about snapping the fingers around in, in our culture. It's more like what listening to music or getting somebody's attention. I don't know. Um, not yelling across the yard, not yelling down the road. So mostly just restraining the body, keeping the body controlled. It, 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 it impresses people. It influences people, impacts people. 
especially here at the Abbey, because kind of the energy is a little bit more down than it is like in a shopping mall or something like that. So, well, you know, it can easily rise up to the sound of, of being a little bit disturbing, a little bit unsettling. Okay, then let's see. I've got a little bit left here, folks. Any questions so far? Is this landing? Is this helpful? Helpful? See if I've got anything here. I've got 128. I forget what's in here. I think though we go to the the last verses here. Bodhisattva's conduct. Verse 97. From among the limitless deeds of a bodhisattva that have been taught, I should certainly practice as much of this conduct that trains the mind. So bodhisattva's conduct is very expansive and we need to do our best to try and emulate those deeds. All the teachings we receive are about this ideal, continue to practice where we are, learn to develop more you know, finesse with the teachings, our behavior will change. Um, and then it goes through... Um, oh, there's this... Um, Geshe Yeshi Tumpton says... There's a verse uh, 98, three times by day and three times by night, I shall recite the sutra of the three heaps. Okay, so that's the, the, the Bodhisattva's confession of ethical downfalls. By relying upon the victors in the mind of enlightenment, my remaining downfalls will be purified. So he says, this is an interesting little uh, analogy. He says, negative karma does not require any effort on our part to create. It accumulates spontaneously in our minds like dust accumulates in our houses. Especially here at the Abbey, dust is over pollen, dust is over everything. And we know what that is, right? So we need to dust frequently, day by day, purifying each day as we do. Okay, so just as dusting around here, dusting in the city, whatever pollution lands in the city, purifying our minds day by day as if we are dusting our beautiful abode. Um, then the last ones... Verse 99, verse 100, verse 101. Um, whatever I do on any occasion, whether in terms of myself or others, I should make effort and learn whatever training has been taught for that occasion. So here Venerable says, in a lot of situations, we are either the leaders and sometimes we are the followers. If something needs to be done or someone needs to help, step in and do it. Other times, let the people do what they need to do and don't interfere. I mean, this is Abby training every day. And here, once again, Shanti Dave is like, it's not off course. Our guidelines for living at the Abbey are totally in line with what Shanti Dave is telling himself, telling the world, telling others, telling bodhisattvas, you know, whatever I do, let me use it as a training. Let me make effort. Let me support. Let me collaborate. Let me lead. Whatever is needed. So we're right in line with our Abbey uh, guidelines for following Shanti Deva. There is no such thing as something that, I, that is not learned by the victor's children. Thus, if I am skilled in abiding in this way, nothing will be non-meritorious. So here, there is nothing a bodhisattva learns that they do not put into practice. That is like, that's ground zero for them. If we are to benefit others, we need to know the different methods appropriate for each of them. Having learned them, we do our best to keep them and not neglect or forget them. 
So keeping methods that work. This is kind of, once again, I think an individual practice thing is that as we go along, we learn different ways that are appropriate for our temperament, our predisposition, our personalities, where we are on the path. But if we find something that really works, something that really helps us to engage the world, uh, resolve conflicts, connect with people, we keep those as part of our repertoire. It works once, it worked twice. This is something I can use. And to remember, whether it's the thought training, it's the long rim, whatever we've got going, you know, the meditations, we find things that work for us in particular in our way to benefit others, to gather virtue, to refrain from virtue. We keep those uniquely as our own medicines. And as time goes on and we use them and become more familiar, they're going to be there by like default. They're going to be totally accessible. We're not going to have to go looking back in the commentaries to see what did they say? What do I do here? They're going to have them really accessible. Lean on them, learn them, and use them well. Um, Venerable says, be open to learning everything, even the things you don't like to do. Um, in the perfection of wisdom of ultimate nature, there's also the wisdom of conventional areas. They call them the five sciences, poetry, grammar, reasoning, crafts. And for us, it's things like water systems, forest health, IT, problem solving, how to use two bags of lime, limes in the refrigerator quickly. You know, there's all this conventional wisdom that we need to learn to be able to abide in the world and to be able to be of benefit. So on one hand, we need to, you know, to figure out the ultimate, to, to practice and to meditate and to ask questions about the wisdom realizing emptiness, how to understand how things exist. And as we're going along on the conventional level, how to do our job, how to take care of things, how to abide with sentient beings and get along with them. So, you know, and to also to learn how to set a virtuous motivation so we can handle any of these situations that come up that, you know, bodhicitta instead of a grumbling mind would be, you know, something we need to kind of work with. Opportunities galore to accumulate merit and to be of benefit. And um, Venerable says, kind of in a, as the end of this section here, she says, our mind makes situations so much more difficult than they really are. <laughs> so identify the mental factors <laughs> and ask if a bodhisattva mind is what we are generating here. So the whole thing about introspective awareness and mindfulness and integrity, consideration for others is all about what is really going on here. Am I making this up? Is there some truth to the situation? Is my mind in a place that I can work with it, that I can work with somebody else, that I can transform it? Or am I just perpetuating negativities? You know, there's, there's so much about this chat that's about ethical conduct, about how we are in the world, how we are with others. And so these, these mental factors are hugely important to, to really discern where our minds are at any given time. And then the last of the verses are kind of, God, I got a lot of sheets of paper here. I'll just read some of them. There's a whole set of them here that say, I should train and devote myself to my spiritual master in the manner that's taught in the biography of Sri Sambhava. I tried to find him on Google, that wasn't there. I should read the sutras because it is to them that the practices appear. To begin with, I should look at the sutra of Akashagarbha. So it goes on relying on the different treatises, the texts, the compendium trainings. Nagarjuna is everything here. So to be able to use the 
text to provide guidance on what is virtuous, what is not, and to not behave in ways that are unbecoming of a bodhisattva. And once again, like I said on our motivation today, our teachers are the helpful guides for us to be able to unpack these teachings, to know what it is to become a bodhisattva. What is training in the bodhisattva deeds really look like? So their guidance is really crucial. Although we are still ordinary people, we make a big impact on others, and we want that impact to be virtuous and inspiring and long-term. So mindfulness and introspection are required in all places of the training. Mere knowledge and discussion are pointless unless we walk the talk. That's kind of the, uh, the summary of this entire chapter. So that's kind of what I harvested out of this second part of the chapter. Any comments or conclusions or questions? Anything online, Venerable Sultram? Quiet on the Western Front there? Okay. Well, it's been a pleasure. It was very helpful to revisit this chapter.